welcome to That Implementation Science Podcast, the show that aims to reduce the innovation to implementation gap to 16 and a half years. I'm your host, Mike Pullman, and on today's show, co-host Kevin King and I will talk with Danny Almerol about sequential multiple assignment randomized trials, or smart designs, and multi-level adaptive implementation strategies, or mazes, and the difference between salsa the dance and salsa the food. Somehow we never found out what the letter Y in Maisie stands for, so if you know, please pass it along. Danny's so much fun. This was one of my favorite episodes to record so far, and I know you're going to love it. Without further ado, let's get started. All right, everyone. Welcome. I am Mike Pullman, and I'm here with my co-host, Kevin King. Hey, everyone. And we are talking today with Danny Almerall. Danny Almerall is an associate professor at the University of Michigan, where he is the center co-director of the D3C Center, and that stands for the Data Science for Dynamic Intervention Decision-Making Center. One of the better acronyms I've heard of, you have a number in there, that's pretty good. You have a lowercase d, that's always a winner (laughs) in an acronym. Uh, Danny's work focuses on developing research methods that can inform and optimize adaptive and tailored interventions. So welcome to the show. Uh, How are you doing? Oh, man, I'm so happy to be here. You guys have no idea. I'm a little nervous too, but I'm really really happy that you and Kevin uh, invited me to do this. I, I, I look forward to sharing some thoughts. I'm just really excited <laughs> and <That's> nervous. <laughs> we're really excited to have you here, Danny. Uh, thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. Yeah, we, we were talking a little bit before before we started recording about how, uh, like the first time that we met you or how we know you. And I don't know if you know this, Danny, um, but I first talked with you, oh my goodness, probably back in 2010 or 2011. I remember being on a phone call with Elizabeth McCauley and you about smart trials and you were so generous to, and I still remember like, oh, Danny Dalmoral is going to meet with us on the phone and talk about smart trials. And you gave us all kinds of advice. Uh, and you, I just thought you used to be so generous in with your time, just kind of giving the knowledge away. And I loved that about you. And then I don't think I really bumped into you again for several years. Oh, wow. And, and that re- the reaction you had really brings me some really nice, warm thoughts and feelings because I don't, I don't think of myself as so generous and all those good things you just said. And, but I'm glad that I was helpful and hopefully was helpful to you. I do remember that, by the way. She is, I, I think I do remember that. Yeah, I think I do a long time ago, actually. And then I ran into you again at Washington through Rise, right? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Aaron Lyon and Eric Brunz's RISE Institute, the uh, Research Institute on Implementation Science and Education, where you're one of the sort of the resident scholars. I don't remember the, the, the core faculty and I'm an affiliated faculty. And yeah, it's been great to sort of work with you on that as well. So really love to hear a little bit about kind of how you found yourself in this field of implementation science methodology. Like what was your career trajectory like and, and what is it about you know, implementation science that, uh, that really moves you. <laughs> oh my goodness. I think it's kind of cool if I start in, uh, the 
the in fourth grade when I learned about prime numbers. <laughs> All right, Miss Na- Miss Nancy Jacobs at Meadow Lane Elementary uh, uh, in Hialeah, Florida. And uh, that's when I was like completely blown away when she just when she explained the difference between a prime number and an odd number. I was like, wait a minute, what? And I think shortly thereafter is when I knew I wanted to do math. Uh, I was so into it. And then if we fast forward like six years later to high school, um, that's when I knew with 100 percent certainty that I wanted to be a math teacher. So I I always wanted to get up in front of the board and kind of like sketch out stuff with the chalk, you know, and I just I loved math. So then when I got to college, I remember I still remember the first day at the University of Florida. They had us all in a room and they did this weird thing where they had people uh, they they named my name and I was supposed to stand up and scream out the, the degree I wanted to start with. (laughs) And I, and I, of course, very enthusiastically got up and said, mathematics education. (laughs) And and their response was really funny. They were like, "Um, that is not a degree at the University of Florida. (laughs) 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 And so, so they, they wrote down math uh, as my degree. And so I ended up getting a math major. I ended up uh, getting a dual major, I ended up throwing statistics on there and my junior and senior year. And I still remember that's an interesting story because I failed my first stats exam, but I did get, and then fast forward to, um, I ended up doing an internship at Harvard Biostats under David Whippy. Um, and then from there, I came to Michigan. I did my PhD with Susan Murphy. And that's when the whole world just like opened up, right? The moment I met Susan, oh man, that was just amazing. And so that's what got me into causal inference. So when I first started, I did basically causal, and this was in the heyday of causal inference. I don't know if you remember that, right? So this is early 2000s uh, was the heyday. I call it the heyday. My committee was these amazing people, Stephen Roddenbush, you know, the HLM person in yeah. education. Uh, he, he's oh, on my uh, committee. Yeah. He's on my committee. Yushia, who is a famous sociologist, was on my committee. Susan Murphy was on my committee. And so my 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 uh, degree was in uh, PhD in stats in the, in an area of causal inference, which is like uh, I, I was building off of Jamie Robbins' work. If you know some of Jamie Robbins' work mm-hmm. in epi- epidemiology, then I got my first job at Duke University. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be uh, a, just a biostatistician. I want to create things. <laughs> uh, so I came back for a fellowship here. I did my fellowship, and at the, during that fellowship is when I decided I wanted to be, you know, one of the leaders in adaptive interventions and smarts. So it was way after I got my PhD, you know, two or three years after. Mm -hmm. And I came back here, I did that fellowship. And that's when my career, I think, finally launched. It was at that point. So Danny, that... That's a I I love the story of your trajectory. It's the earliest I think I've heard anybody go back when they talk about sort of how they started. I, I, I have recently taken a tell the story of when I first learned about the scientific method in sixth grade. And I think you've even beaten that. Um, <laughs> well, uh, Nancy, Nancy Jacobs is really special to me. And I, I haven't gone back to see her. I think she's still alive. I think she's still at Medellin. I should go back and say hi to her. She's really special to me. Yeah. It really is like nice to sort of make those connections later on in life and sort of say, Hey, you influence me, you know, big time to go into science. I, I also am thinking, is there a worse icebreaker we can think of than having freshmen stand up in a room and shout things out? <laughs> I, I suspect you're probably in the 
you know, upper 10th decile of extroversion. And that, that probably felt exciting to you. And I'm, I imagine there were a whole pile of introverts in there that would rather have been anywhere else than oh. standing up and shouting out the, the major they wanted. Yeah. And, and I love that you bring up extroversion, introversion. I, I, I don't know, this might come as a surprise, but I'm actually an introvert. I, all I want to do is go hide in a room and do some <laughs> computer programming or some statistics or some derivations, but I put on a really good show, I think is what I end up doing. You have very good coping skills. You sort of <laughs> fake it for long enough until you can divert. Now, I, I actually did want to ask a, a substantive follow-up question instead of just commenting on everything in there, um, which I'm also uh, happy to do. So you told us the sort of how, right? You started thinking you wanted to teach people math and then you studied math and then you added on statistics and then you went towards causal inference. I want to understand the why. What was it about each of those steps that was drawing you in the direction you eventually you eventually got to? Yeah, that's wow. I have never thought about that, but I love the question because I think the answer is off the cuff here. I think the answer is I love to teach. Mm-hmm. And the only thing, and I still consider myself a math teacher. You should know that. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that's changed is, well, the folks I'm teaching mm-hmm. are different <laughs> and what I'm teaching is different. I'm not teaching, you know, like algebra and calculus anymore, which I did a little bit of. I, I was part of the upward bound program, for example. Mm-hmm. I did some of that, you know, during college, make extra cash. Now, I, I the way I view my my job is I am developing some new methods, but I think at the end of the day, my strengths are in getting them out and putting them into the hands of, you know, the applied quants and statisticians and, and people that are going to be using them. That's what I pride myself in. And I think I'm still teaching. And I think the, the why I think has always been, I love to see light bulbs go off. <laughs> I think that's it. And I just got really lucky that in this random thing we call life, I bumped into Susan Murphy and she was able to kind of uh, inspire me in a, this particular direction that you know, the, the direction you know me in, which is behavioral interventions, effectiveness, science, you know, smart trials and all that. But I, I think that, you know, so I think the why is I love teaching. I love seeing vi- light bulb goes off. And, and actually, I'm really pleased with the direction I'm in because like there's something really special about intervention science, right? Like we, we wake up every day and we're trying to create things that are going to improve the lives of people. And that is how I think of my work. And if that's your passion, then implementation science is a natural fit because you're able to take your sort of methodological work and actually, you know, give it to people. You know, you're sort of like an implementer for implementers, right? You're taking these research developments and helping people implement the methods so that they can implement more uh, effective uh, interventions. I think you nailed it. And I've never said it out loud. And I'm glad you said it, not me. I do think of myself as an implementer. Mm-hmm. I do. I do. I totally do. Yeah. You know, I, I actually wrote, I hate to be self-referential, but uh, I, with Mike and a whole team of folks, wrote a whole paper on the idea of like, how can we use the principles of an implementation science to improve how we implement quantitative methods in, oh. in, in psychology? And I, I, I'll, I'll put that in the show notes, but I feel like you're sort of a living embodiment of that. What you said is sort of what we need way more of in oh. quantitative methods. That's great. And can I hang out with you guys some more? I want to, I want to see that paper come to fruition. I want to help. I do <laughs> that, too. That sounds amazing. Yeah. 
So a lot of your work in the first way that we first heard about you, obviously, as we mentioned earlier, was around smart trials. Um, so sequential, multiple assignment, randomized trials, just like TCBY yogurt, the T at the end of smart trials isn't necessary. I guess it should be a SMAR trials, right? That's right. Um, uh, why don't you talk a little bit about what smart trials are, how they are applied, and in specific, how they're applied to tailored interventions, because I think that's the, the closest link to uh, uh, why they're important in implementation science. That's great. And I love that you picked up on the problem with saying smart trials. And, and so if you look at some of my writing and my talks, I usually end up saying smart designs <laughs> because of that conundrum. <laughs> um, so actually the way I wanted to start or the way I'd like to start answering the question about smarts, which is how you guys came to know me is I feel very strongly. And I think others that are experts in this area, because I'm not the only one, right? There's a whole community uh, would agree, I hope, you only do smarts when you're interested in constructing a really good adaptive intervention. So actually for me to describe smarts, I have to go back a little bit and actually start in a different place. I have to start in what are clinicians doing in the real world or what do they want to be doing or what do they need guidance with? And uh, the whole idea of an adaptive intervention, which I think you call the tailored intervention in your intro um, and there's a reason we could talk about it later as to why I call it an adaptive intervention and not a tailored intervention. But the whole idea is this is what we what we think. This is what clinicians want to do. They want to intervene on someone or, okay, monitor them or discover whether that thing they tried is working or not, and then take that information and take a next step forward, right? I, I think that's what they want to do. And what we discovered in the early, you know, late mid to late 2000s is that in, in a lot of the areas I work in, autism, mental health, substance use, clinicians don't really know how to do that. Uh, and, and it's because, well, there's many reasons why that might be the case. And, and they don't know how to do that, even though we have a ton of evidence-based practices around, right? And so that, that then made this created this huge motivation for this idea of an adaptive intervention in our science, right? Not just in the clinical world, because what we realize is we, we need to do some science around these things. You know what I mean? And so once we knew what an adaptive intervention is and we were able to talk about it, then we were able to talk about SMART trials. SMARTs are what, if, if adaptive interventions are what clinicians do, Smarts are what the researchers do to try to create really good adaptive interventions. So now if we switch over to us, the three of us, you know, we're scholars, we're researchers, uh, we might participate in a smart, <laughs> right? And we might design one, we might analyze one. And the reason you do a smart is because you want to walk out of your, you have a bunch of questions about how to construct a really good adaptive intervention. That's it. And Anyway, I can, I can go on. Obviously, it's, it's my 15 years of work, so I can go on and on and up, and I won't, and I won't unless you ask me to. But um, one of the cool things about this area that I think implementation scientists are just now starting to grapple with is this huge distinction between what I call optimization or what Linda Collins calls mm -hmm. optimization and evaluation. And smarts are solidly a tool for optimization. That is, they're a tool for building a really good intervention. That's it. That's it. You know? And so that's been fun too. Like 
growing the field of optimization methods. You know, when I first started, we basically had two worlds, right? We had pilots and observational study data analyses and two RMRCTs, right? <laughs> and, and we've kind of elbowed those two things out of the way and created this new middle space on optimization. And that's where smarts live. Let me stop there. That's sort of my 30-second th uh, you know, intro to smarts. <laughs> can, I, can I ask a question uh, that, that probably feels a little basic, but if, if I'm a clinician listening to this, I might imagine, I, I might sort of think, you know, I do adaptive I, I do adapt to my patients. My patient comes in with one problem one week and, you know, we deal with that. And then the next week they come in with a different problem. So just, can you maybe be a little more concrete or just give a, for example, of a clinical situation where somebody might sort of want to adapt? Um, they might want to change direction and they might want to do something new and they're not sure. Like when you say they're not sure what to do, they're not sure how to do it. What do you mean? Yeah. That's great, Kevin. You, I think you nailed the heart of it without using jargon. So here is what I think is happening, okay? Yeah, if you ask any clinician out there, they adapt and they'll tell you, I, I don't need to listen to this, I adapt. But here's the kicker. When they were doing their adapting, the treatments they provide mm -hmm. to the patient, were there any principles there and was the adaptation process one that was informed by any science? Now you might ask, well, why does that even matter? Here's the catch. Here's the catch. We know from other areas of science, not intervention science, like we know from other areas like, like flying an autonomous helicopter, which is a completely wildly different area. But we know from other areas of science that making myopic decisions, right? Like patient comes in and only then am I thinking about like what I'm going to do right then and there and not thinking about mm -hmm. the next step that might come later could backfire. And, and to give you a concrete example, we are starting to see, for example, in the ADHD literature, with children with ADHD, you know, pediatric ADHD. Uh, and it's funny, I even have to say that nowadays, because nowadays we're finding that adults have ADHD too. Okay, so with, with children and adolescents with ADHD, we're starting to learn, this is a, like a new thing as of 10, 5, 10 years ago, that actually if you start off out of the gates with medication and the kid doesn't improve, it might be hard to do behavioral therapy later. Whereas the evidence is suggesting that if I start with behavioral therapy and they don't improve, you then might have the option of coming to intervent to medications to improve them. Well, that, that I'm going to put in quotes fact was one of the results of Bill Pelham's smart study. Right. And that's because he was explicitly interested in what do I start with and how do I sequence it? But if we, if we don't think proactively about the fact that there's going to be decisions you're going to make moving forward, we may be making the wrong decisions. And of course we know a ton of kids get medication right out of the gates, <laughs> right? I mean, that is like, you know, much fewer kids are getting the behavioral therapy and the science is starting to look like it may not be the way to go, right? So anyway, that's just one concrete example, but I can think of a ton of them where you might actually have to, clinicians might want a guide. Notice how I'm framing it. I'm not trying to replace clinicians. <laughs> they might want a guide for how to think about treating and monitoring and treating again, because maybe that actually will lead to better outcomes. And that's what we believe. So, so it's, I mean, that's a great answer and a great way to explain it, I think. So it's about thinking about things, like you said, in a principled way, rather than ad hoc, 
and using, providing some, because there's always going to have to be some ad hoc modifications. There's always going to be things we can't account for, but you're saying maybe we can add some science or provide some science to these big picture decisions that clinicians might make, you know, and, and, and as you said, sort of things to think about, like, Hey, if you start, if you start here, you might be able to end up here. If you start here, here's maybe what your next option is. But if you don't, if you do it a different way, your options might be different. That's exactly and that, right. I mean, that's just one example of it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's exactly right. Really helpful. And, and the other, the other kind of example I like to give, which is a little more abstract, it's not the ADHD example, but I think, I think it jives well is like a lot of us are accustomed to like intensifying treatments, right? Like we see it everywhere, right? Like mm-hmm. stepping up if things are not looking so good, we see it in the education and the multi-tiered mm-hmm. system, but Kevin and Mike, Mike, like have anyone, one of us ever asked Maybe we got to come right out of the gates for a kid with some sort of mental health disorder, come out, out of the gates with something burdensome, for lack of a better word, and expensive and like bring out the Cadillac and then step down. Uh, uh, because we we know, at least in substance use where I work, that if like we lose a ton of people by week four, right? And this happens in mental health, right? And so like, you know, I think there's some really fundamental questions about how we think about adaptation that that we're starting to poke at, you know, I'm not saying, I'm not saying I have any answers, Kevin, but I am mm-hmm. saying that this whole area of adaptive interventions does merit some attention. I really think it does. First of all, you just won our secret game, which is the six degrees of Bill Pelham. You mentioned his name <laughs> specifically. I am uh, convinced that Bill Pelham, uh, that every social scientist, at least in the United States, is only six degrees separated from Bill Pelham in one way or another. And you just have made a direct connection. So that's good. Good for you. Um, uh, Second of all, no, I think this point that you're bringing up is so good. We've been talking so much lately about response to interventions and trying to uh, tailor to how people are... um, uh, are responding to interventions and really trying to do the light touch first because that's cheaper. But obviously, you know, if someone was having a heart attack, you brought them into the hospital, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, the first thing you would do wouldn't be to, you know, change their diet, right? They're having a heart attack. It's an important thing. So there are probably specific indicators immediately from the get-go that you can assess that would um, point people into certain interventions. And some people, it may be really important for them to be getting those sort of uh, high-use interventions. You're probably saving money and saving time in the long run by doing that. Um, And smart trials, I think, can allow you to identify some of those characteristics, or some retrospective trials can identify some of those characteristics that would be indicative of things that... um, uh, that would that would require some more intensive use. I think that's a great example. I'm kind of curious, you know, you've brought up before when we've talked about some some kind of misperceptions that people have around smart trials when they shouldn't be applied and to, towards the quest of try, you know, trying to make sure that in, implementation researchers avoid this mistake. Where and when are some situations that people have come to you and wanted to use a smart trial, but it doesn't make sense? You know, Mike, I can take that uh, the first part of that answer, because the first time I ever met Danny, uh, I was uh, working with Aaron Lyon doing some methodological consult- consultation. And Aaron said, you know, we were planning for a new grant proposal. So let's talk to Danny because I think we want to have a smart trial. And I said, I don't know what the hell these are. So I have no opinion, I, uh, but I'll happily listen to a phone call. And we 
G- Danny generously met with us for an entire hour, spending almost the entire time telling us, yeah, you don't need to do a smart trial. This does <laughs> not need to be a smart trial. And, and I just, I, I will say, I always re- respect and admire the scientific integrity of somebody who is well known for using a particular method, trying to talk people out of using that particular method, because I, I, I you know, that's not an necessarily an easy thing when grant dollars and consultation opportunities, or even just opportunities to try out the method that you're passionate about uh, come about. So uh, I, I just wanted to jump in and, and share that story. I, I, I don't know that I've ever had a similar experience where somebody said, yeah, you don't need me. Don't, don't use me. Don't work with me. <laughs> it was great. Oh, that's awesome. I, you know, I attribute that quality to my training and my advisor, Susan Murphy. There's a few things she taught me that will never, that will never leave me and uh, color everything I do every day. And the two of them are give it all away. Okay. And when you develop a method, a tool, it's just a tool. That tool is not used for every single problem. And in fact, if you use that tool for every single problem or you, or people perceive that you do, uh, you're not doing the tool a service or science. (laughs) All right. And those messages, she didn't quite say it like that. You know, this is more of a vibe. But those messages were so loud in my head, those two messages, you know, so I do try to give it away, meaning, and I think that's what, you know, when you said, oh, you're willing to meet with us, I guess I want to give it away. I, I want every, she, I think she once said, you know, you're putting yourself out of a job or something like that. Like, that is my goal is to teach, 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 give it away. But if it's not needed, then let's not do it, man. <laughs> uh, and, and this is the part of my, of my approach to scholarship where I get to listen carefully to what the PI's questions are. What are their scientific questions? And I try so hard to cross the bridge. You know, I'm just a statistician, so I don't have any clinical training. But that's the part where, like, I try to l- put that ear over the, across the bridge and if and it must have been the case, I don't remember the call, Kevin, but it must have been the case that the words Aaron was using and his questions just didn't lend themselves to a smart. And so, you know, you, know, you say you, you shouldn't uh, just a tool shouldn't be applied to everything except for structural equation modeling. Of course, that should be applied to everything. Oh, wait, wait, wait. You're not listening to Quantitude podcast Uh-oh. right now. So sorry. Uh-oh. <laughs> um, we totally agree. It's why we're doing this podcast. We're trying to give it away as much as possible. That's why it's great to have people like you on board. That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. But so, you know, to follow up on Mike's question, I, I completely interrupted. I, I do, I think, do think we want to hear, um, you know, what are some situations where smart trials are not appropriate and, and how do you differentiate between times when maybe we should have a, you know, a smart trial and maybe we shouldn't. Yeah. Let's start with, all right, where I started a little five or 10 minutes ago, which is you will not be doing a smart unless you're doing some science, some project related to adaptive interventions, that's going to be the starting point. So you don't wake up one morning and say, I'm going to do a smart. (laughs) You wake up one morning saying, I'm going to do some research on adaptive interventions, right? That's what the clinician's doing. You with me? So if you pass that bar, you may still not be doing a smart. In other words, this is another big problem, Kevin. People now conflate adaptive interventions with SMART. So they think every single study that ever lived that does anything about adaptive interventions must be a SMART. That's false. Like, like it depends on the question. So the second step there, Kevin, is what is your question about the adaptive interventions? And like, suppose, suppose Bill Pelham 
didn't have the question, what do I start with? Suppose Bill Pelham only had the question, hey, I'm going to give everyone behavioral therapy. And I just want to know for the non-responders, you know, what do I do next? Do I intensify or do I do combined, you know, behavioral and med? If that was the only question Bill had, he's not going to do a smart or I'm not going to let him do a smart. He only has one question at one time point. It's given that you become a non-responder, what do I do? That's just one question. And, but a smart has these multiple randomizations. So, so a smart has multiple randomizations because you have more than one question at multiple time points related to how to build a really good adaptive intervention. So it's only when you pass that bar that I'm going to look at you and say, okay, let's play around, you know, let's, let's play around with, let's see if the smart's going to work for you. And then trust me, I've been down these rabbit holes where they pass those two bars and we go two months into the design of a smart just to realize they're no longer thinking that these two questions are that interesting or that important or that significant. And guess what? We end up not doing a smart <laughs> and that's okay too. Science is messy. You know, so I think that that is the third one. The third one is the questions you want to answer about the construction of an adaptive intervention at the multiple time points. Those questions have to be important. Like if Mike, you know, you're like half clinician, right? Like if you know, if you know what to do for a kiddo with anxiety disorders that presents three weeks after they've tried meds, if you know what to do and you think the rest of your colleagues are going to know what to do. Well, then let's not randomize. Like, just, you know what to do, <laughs> right? And so like, or, or, or if the thing you're going to do is adapting the intervention, but it's adapting it in a rather trivial way that you think everyone else would agree with. Well, you don't need a smart to show that. So that's like the third bar. And that, that one's harder. That one's harder because that one is, that's, there's a judgment there. You know, I can't codify where the line is on whether something is significant or innovative. That one is on a case-by-case -case basis. But the other two are critical. You have to be interested in adaptive intervention and you have to have more than one decision points in that adaptive intervention where you have a critical question. Whether it's critical or not, you know, that one's a little harder, right? <laughs> Could you give us maybe some examples of some tailored interventions and how a SMART trial informed those designs? Well, I gave you the example earlier about the Bill Pelham one, you know, so like yeah. the, the going right now, if you talk to Bill, you know, this is not yet implemented and not yet even accepted, right? The psychiatrists haven't fully accepted it, but things are starting to point in the direction that you want to start with the little kids on behavioral therapy. And if they don't respond, start, uh, then consider medication. Um, and one of the interesting things they found in that study was that they think one of the reasons, notice how I frame that, they think, because I think, by the way, I think all mechanisms work, all mediation work is you're conjecturing, right? You, you can only do so much <laughs> with mechanisms work. So they think one of the reasons is that when I put the kid on medication first, the response is so quick and so fast that should the kid then struggle later, which inevitably some proportion will, they now don't have the wherewithal to sit through therapy. It's almost like we've primed them for this, like, you know, like they don't even want to, they, they can't even adhere or comply with showing up to talk to a therapist because the experience of feeling so good so fast, because like, you know, medication works, man. <laughs> Taking that thing works. <laughs> but 
that doesn't mean, you know, that, you know, you still get people that taper off. They stop taking the meds. Things get, life gets complicated. You know what I mean? So I don't know, Kevin, if that answers your question, but I think that ADHD example is a powerful one uh, and even a, uh, a hot topic even, right? I think that's an example I, uh, of a good one that, yeah. I, that is top of mind, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you think about the, just how you implement that, even at scale, right? There's all sorts of, I mean, and this is not in the smart trial design, but you think there's all sorts of challenges of like getting people into a good medication management routine, getting people access to good behavior therapy. And like both of those on both sides are, are challenging, even on the medication side, you know, national shortages of stimulant medication that people are experiencing right now. Yeah. Um, so even if you get into these, I, mean, I, I don't know, I, I'm curious actually how much you you think about that. Do you think about how smart trials and the things you might want to do with an ideal implementation of a tailored intervention, how does that interface with sort of real world constraints and real world challenges? 100%. And I do struggle with that. And, and I actually, I love the question. I want to back up for a second. You know, you're now getting into implementation science in my mind. Yeah, big time. Okay. But I want you to know that over the last month, I'm having the realization that a lot more implementation scientists are starting to own, for lack of a better phrase, the space that we were talking about earlier, which is another interesting concept, maybe con a conversation, maybe for later in the podcast. But let me get back to your question. Yes, right? Like if I develop a really good, highly effective real world intervention, which is my bread and butter, by the way, that is what I consider myself. I consider myself to be an effectiveness scientist first. You still have to answer the question, how do you get this into the real world? <laughs> of course. Yeah. And uh, the way those of us that were trained in that, in that generation of the mid 2000s, you know, early, you know, 2005 in that window, those, those of us that were trained in that generation, you know, Tom Tenhave, Andy Leon, and all these other statisticians who both of those have passed away, actually, we were building this beautiful world of like real, real world effectiveness trials. So coming back to your question, Kevin, my scholarship and notice I'm talking about my scholarship, not my implementation science scholarship. I'm talking about my effectiveness science scholarship is when I design a trial, by definition, the thing has to be implementable. Now, that does not mean I know how I'm going to implement it. That is the thing, I, the thing that we leave on the table as effectiveness scientists, the thing we leave on the table and we know we're leaving on the table is we got a real world intervention. This is not an efficacy intervention. This is real world. Like the delivery was real world. Everything about it was real world from the perspective of the patient and the system. But what's left is how do I get this real world thing into the hands of those clinicians? And that's why I got so excited when implementation science came along. Cause I'm like, Oh hell yeah. All the work I'm doing, I'm teeing, I'm teeing it up for these folks. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so to answer your question, I know I I'm long winded on that, but I feel very passionate about it is my entire training. Like if you, if you ever design a study with me, you'll see that like from the perspective of the families and the kids and the patients, they don't even like the only time they knew they were in a research study is when they signed the consent form and when they got called by the research team. And that's that's key what I'm saying to get their outcomes. But during treatment, that thing felt so real world. So what I'm trying to say is I take so seriously the implementability 
and scalability of interventions from the get-go. And in fact, if when K awardees come to me to write pilots and 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 you know pilot smarts and pilot mm-hmm. studies, my whole focus is: can we do this? The, you know, the acceptability, the feasibility, the implementability, and it's always been that way, even before I knew what implementation science was. I don't know if right, you're saying no. Yeah, that's great. And you're not saying like, can we do this in you know my specialty clinic at the university with no. graduate trainees? You know, I, I I love the shorthand of saying people in the trial barely recognize that they're in. The yeah. trial, because that that seems to to a- emphasize that, regardless of whether the challenges of generalizability or broad scale implementation yeah. in this setting, this feels no different than when somebody would walk into a treatment and say, "Hey, I need some help." That's exactly right, and and that is how I was trained. So none of these are my ideas. Just so you know, this is like Andy Leon, Thomas Tenney, Susan Murphy. Like we we like one of the mottos during when I was trained was like, what's the difference between efficacy and effectiveness? We, you know, we talked a lot about that and everybody in my generation knew that they're like, yeah, that's obvious. It's in effectiveness trials, you offer interventions mm-hmm. in efficacy trials, you get them. Mm-hmm. So like it, it, when a pharmaceutical company does a trial, come hell or high water, they're trying to get everybody to put that pill in their mouth. When an effectiveness scientist do an, uh, a, a medication trial, it's all about like, what do you say in the clinical room when you make the prescription and what do you do to make sure they go fill the prescription, you know, and you don't pay them for that, you know? And so like, that's how I was trained. And so um, anyway, it's been really interesting to see implementation science. I am seeing implementation science, you know, you know, Renad Betis and all those folks, they wrote that, uh, that pre-mortem paper. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about. Super fascinating, yeah. super yeah. fascinating paper. I mean, such a good paper. And I, I was telling Renad, I was, I was saying, Renad, you know, I wonder if there's one pre-mortem thing, you know, because they created a list of things that they hope they don't look back 20 years later and say, shoot, we messed that one up. And one of the things I do worry about, and I was talking to Renat about this and we didn't come to any conclusion. One of the things I worry about is our implementation scientists forgetting effectiveness science. <laughs> uh, I'm seeing more and more, and Kevin and Michael, I'm seeing more and more people going straight from the fake not fake, but not real world, efficacy mm-hmm. study, straight to implementation. And um, it's getting me a little nervous, mm-hmm. but I'm just one person and maybe I'm making a fuss over nothing at all. I don't know. <laughs> so a lot of what you're talking about is the uh, is the need for implementation science to be applying itself in a really, in a real world setting. I, I love this. I think, and in some ways, I think we've talked about this in the show before, there's a um, opportunity that implementation science has in particular, if interventions have been shown to be uh, efficacious, or I'm sorry, if they've been shown to be safe, to just jump straight to the effectiveness trial and to not even like bother with efficacy and to basically yeah. do an effectiveness trial right away yeah. and not have to waste a lot of time. Um, oftentimes though, these trials, um, have all sorts of different contextual different factors going on. We've got and then and then implementation scientists themselves are interested in asking some of these questions around. Well, what sort of modifications do I need to have uh, need to do at at higher levels? So, are there, is there work that we need to do with leadership or with, at the clinic level in addition to the work that we're doing at therapists uh, ther- therapist level? So. You- You've developed some methods quite recently that you've been kind of talking about quite a bit called Maisies. I was wondering if you could give kind of a quick elevator speech about what Maisies are and how they can be useful and maybe how they're aligned or not with smart trials. Oh, yeah, totally. Once I started playing around with implementation scientists, um, then I started to understand what they were doing. You know, they want to develop implementation strategies. 
to get these things into the hands of clinicians, right? These things being the evidence-based practices. So, but to me, to a statistician, to someone that was trained in those early 2000s, that's just another intervention. It just has a fancy name called an implementation strategy. And of course, that's not to uh, demote it in any way or trivialize it. Like we do need a science about implementation strategies and I'm thrilled about it. But for me, I felt like I could take everything I know about intervention science and I could maybe play in this space, you know, in the implementation strategy space. And I, I have been successful playing in that space with something called Maisie's. Uh, Maisie's are basically they're multi-level adaptive implementation strategies. So these are strategies, implementation strategies that are adaptive and multi-level because almost all of implementation strategies are multi-level. And so the idea there is these are also adaptive interventions, but they're a special kind of adaptive intervention because they're not an intervention on the patient. They're an intervention on the clinicians, the system, the clinic. It has a lot of the same flavor as an adaptive intervention, but it is fundamentally different, right? And so that I've been playing in that space and that, that's that been a fun ride. And that's where I'm at today. Today, I'm working on that. And to your other point, which which is about Maisie's uh, and, and their connection to SMART, just as not all research on adaptive interventions need a SMART, then not all research on Maisie's needs a SMART. There is a role for SMARTs, and actually there's a pretty unique and novel one because the moment we think about multi-level implement, uh, adapt Maisie's, we realize some of those sequential randomizations might be at different levels. So you might have a first randomization at a clinic level and then another randomization to the clinicians within the clinic. And that's opened up for me a whole new area of statistics where I'm now grappling with these ideas of like spillover effects and all of these things in the context of implementation strategies and in the context of Maisie's because I have to, right? Because inevitably someone's going to, you know, so that's, that's where I'm at today in terms of the statistical part of it is uh, the causal inference. And that's what I'm working on right now is exactly how do we get straight the ideas around spillover and networks and all of those methods, right? How do we analyze data from a multi-level smart so that we are thoughtful about those causal issues? And so that's where I'm at today. And I hopefully in the next year, you'll start seeing papers on that topic. Like, would this be amazing? Let's say you assign clinic leadership to receive a leadership intervention, right? Uh, while at the same time, and that leadership intervention is designed to help implementation structure, right? In, in implementation climate. Um, while at the same time, you're assigning um, clinicians within those clinics to uh, different interventions. So maybe you're training them on TFCBT, right? And then you're finding, okay, so for those clinicians that have really low attitudes, around uh, TFCBT. Perhaps there's an interaction between the leadership and the implementation climate, and perhaps you want to do special interventions with those. So maybe you want to do coaching with those who have really low attitudes to help intervent, you know, to help the intervention. Is that the type of thing where you're really working at multiple levels and still making those kind of sequential sorts of decisions around uh, whether when there's uptake or not uptake, or am I getting Maisie's completely wrong? No, it sounds like you just described a study whose goal is to develop a really good Maisie. You nailed it. I think you nailed it. I think that's, a, that's exactly right. And you started asking these questions. Notice your questions were at multiple time points across multiple levels. And if your questions are at multiple time points across multiple levels, you might benefit from a multi-level smart to create that Maisie you see you have a vision for. Right, right. The smart being the evaluation portion to see, and then the Maisie being the actual the actual intervention and implementation uh, strategy. Yeah, exactly. The smart is what the researchers do. 
Right. Maisie is what, and the reason you see me giving talks on Maisie's and not multi-level smarts yet is because I needed to get all my ducks in a row on what the heck is a Maisie before I start doing the statistics for it, right? Because like, that's how I was trained. I was trained, uh, you don't just do statistics for statistics sake. Well, so that's awesome. I love hearing about it. Wish we had more time. What we're going to do right now, though, is we always need to do a, a quiz with our um with our guests. Uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about the quiz, and then I'm going to uh, have Kevin tell you a little bit about the prize that you'll win if you choose, if you uh, get the, the enough answers on this quiz correct. So uh, first of all, so the quiz is going to be about something that you like to do. It's about salsa dancing. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about, uh, about salsa dancing and how you learned and whether, you know, I imagine a salsa dancer might might get a chance to to meet meet a lot of different people. Tell us a little bit about this. Uh, I grew up, you know, my my dad, you know, at all the holiday parties, always brought out his conga drums and his timbales and his clave and his cowbell. So I grew up in a, you know, in a culture where we were always listening to salsa music. So naturally, I think I gravitated toward wanting to learn how to dance it at an early age. And so that's actually how I met my wife, Michelle. So at some point I, uh, I got so into it. Remember, I love to teach. At some point I got so into it that I, I thought I could teach it as well. And I actually, that is actually how I met Michelle. Michelle came into my, my, uh, my wife, Michelle came into my intro to salsa class here when I was a PhD student. Dating how, a student. Yeah. She's, <laughs> she hates Truth it. Comes say, out. She hates it when I say that. <laughs> she doesn't like the way I tell the story. <laughs> It's so funny. I really enjoy uh, swing dancing, especially Lindy Hop. Um, and so uh, one time my friend Natalie, her mom was in town. She's from Colombia. And so we went out salsa dancing and I had been Lindy Hopping for years. So I was like, all right, like, like, let's do this. This will be fun. And, but it's a completely different kind of dance, like the lower body and the hips, you know what I mean? Like versus like Lindy Hop's all bouncy and like salsa side to side. And every time I thought I was getting it, Natalie's mom is like very patient explaining. Every time I thought I was getting it, I'd be like, all right. I'd like really start kind of letting it flow. And I would hear her mutter to herself, I'm a very bad teacher. Oh, (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, man. Well, so Danny, we're going to, we'll get into our quiz. And one of the things that I think our, our guests have really enjoyed is the prize that you get um, okay. in the quiz. So this is a prize of my own design. Okay. Um, so uh, if you win our quiz, and I'll have to say it, our quizzes are quite challenging, both in terms of the content, but also in terms of following the scoring and the scaling, but that's my own particular <laughs> interest uh, stemming from my interest in measurement. Um uh, so if you win the prize, I will write your next out of office message. So next time you leave the oh, office, you can so have good. something a little bit better than the sort of I'm out of the office with limited access to email or return. Like who this is a modern world. We can do better than that. And that's always been my belief. So um, I, I can give you an example of one I wrote recently. My, my family just got back from a, a vacation um, and so I wrote for my out of office message, I'm out of the office on a family vacation, whether or not it's relaxing and refreshing depends both on the amount of work that accumulates over the span of this trip and the amount of fun we can manage to have during our trip. Either way, I'll work on unburying my inbox, which will include getting back to you when I return on July 17th. Wish me oh, luck. so good. I'll and happily actually, write you something in that tone. Oh, I hope I win, man. Cause, uh, 
this Sunday I'm flying to Chicago to go see Renad for a couple of days. So uh, I hope I win. <laughs> so perfect. So no pressure. Um, so this is a, a salsa quiz for a quantitative researcher. Um, and Mike, I've actually edited a few of the questions ahead of time just to mix it up a, a little bit. Um, uh, I'll start. Uh, the first question is what decade did salsa dancing emerge? Oh man, what a In what hard decade. Yeah. Did what salsa a hard dancing question. Emerge? So um, the heyday would be the 70s in New York City, and because that's when the term salsa even came about. The, of course, nothing is pure, right? It all comes from, you know, New Orleans, Cuba, you know what I mean? But the term salsa was actually a marketing ploy by a couple folks in the New York City area. So that's, that's got to be solid the late 60s and 70s. <laughs> okay. I hope I got it right. According to Mike's information, that's uh, wildly incorrect. Um, although I like how you started by not answering the question and answering a different question, talking about the heyday. So according to our research, it emerged in the 1910s and 1920s. Now for a bonus, can you say which country in which it emer did it emerge from? Oh, I'm going to guess Cuba. You're talking about Cuba, but All um, right. because that's where the mambo comes from. <laughs> right, which is great. So this, that, that's fantastic. <laughs> that is correct. So uh, fortunately for you, the scaling for the scoring on this was a zero inflated uh, count <laughs> data. So you got the first question wrong. So you got the sort of zero part of the mixture wrong, but you still managed to get into um, the count portion. So we're going to give you 25 points uh, for getting that one correct. So uh, congratulations. That's wonderful. Wow, a little hurdle model. Not, not bad. Um, you know, it. actually he did get, so I was reading about this. It's fascinating. I loved reading about the salsa uh, explosion and he's actually absolutely right in that. So it did start in the tens and twenties, but the explosion really occurred like in New York city uh, from Cuban and Puerto Rican uh, immigrants uh, and really. And then, yeah, in the seventies, sixties, like just a, a really quick clarification a zero inflated model is actually different than a hurdle. You're model. right. It a is hurdle. different than a hurdle model. Right. A, a hurdle, hurdle model is two sep separate models. Two separate yeah, models yes, or no, a mixture I'm of models aware. where you can either be a one or a zero or a yeah. zero or part of the count. No. And then a zero inflated, both parts of the distribution. A zero inflated thinks that you think about it, takes on the extra zeros just for the three yeah. of yeah. our few dozen listeners that actually care about this. Oh, no. no. People same, should care. Same, same, but different. Same, same, but People different. People should care quite a bit. I, I, I right. fully agree. So Kevin said he changed the questions around. So I don't know if this question still applies, but I'm going to no, you, you answer your questions. I'll okay, throw okay, in okay. my mixtures. Uh, all right. All right. Yeah. Uh, so for every four beats of music, how many steps does a salsa dancer take? Three. The fourth one is a pause or a hesitation. Did I get it right? Very nice. Very nice. You got that one right. Got That's that one fantastic. Right. And your score yeah. for that one is strongly agree. Nice work. All right. You strongly agree for that one. Okay, uh, what is the mean and range of salsa music's beats per minute? Is oh. it, and I have three options for you, is the mean 100 with a range of 80 to 120, mm. the mean 150 with a range of 120 to 180, or a mean of 190 with a range of 150 to 250? Oh my it, goodness. Ooh I have no idea. Let me just think for a second. I know how to dance it. I know how to sing it. But I never thought about. So, what was the middle range, just so I can anchor myself? Yeah, the middle range is one fifty beats mm -hmm. per minute, mm -hmm. a range of one twenty to one eighty. Yeah, yeah, I'll go with that one just because it's in the middle. <laughs> that one feels right. <laughs> All right, I, I'm also. I have to be honest. I, I uh, played different 
kind of music, traditional Irish music, where where the range of sort of very fast beat is about 120 beats per minute. Uh-huh. So I'm kind of stunned. And that feels very fast to me. So I'm stunned that the actual correct answer is a mean of 190 beats per minute wow. with a range of 150 to 250 beats per minute. Um, I'm stunned. So I'm, stunned. I, I'm sorry, but you get you get a score of no for that okay. one. So you're I up mean, to... I- 25 points plus strongly agree plus no. <laughs> I, w- I was I was shocked by this too, but for Lindy Hop, it's it's B, it's mean of 150. It's a little bit slower. Okay. And even that's pretty fast. You know, I find it pretty fast. But now I recognize why salsa is three out of every four beats. There's the recipe. So it can be a little bit faster. The music yeah. can be a little bit faster. Because yeah. with Lindy Hop, you try to do 190 and it's very difficult to keep up. Then you're having to switch to a different whole different style of dance. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Totally. That's yeah. cool. Thank you for educating me on that. That's great. <laughs> All right, next question. How many calories does an average person burn in 30 minutes of salsa dancing? Is it A, oh my God. <laughs> 75? So in 30 minutes, is it A, 75, B, 200, C, 273, or D, 300? Oh, my goodness. Um, in, in how many minutes? <laughs> 30 minutes. <laughs> okay. And, and uh, what was B and C again? B was 200 and C was 273. Okay, I'll just go with B. <laughs> good choice, good choice. Which I think is probably the same number of calories as a mojito, so it's a nice balance. <laughs> I love That's it. That's awesome. Excellent. You get a very satisfied for that one. Now I have a really simple follow-up question: How many calories? And now, Mike, I have to be honest. I prepared for the wrong kind of uh, topic. So, how many calories are in a typical serving of restaurant salsa? <laughs> <laughs> uh, um. Uh, it's I can just give you. I can give you range. I can give you range. How about uh, uh, it's a just is, tomato juice, right? I'm going to go with like 20 calories. Oh, <laughs> that's right. The answer is somewhere between 15 and 25. That's fantastic. You get All 10 right. points for that one. Nice. <laughs> wow. So yeah. 30 minutes of dancing, you can get 10 10 servings of salsa. That's great. <laughs> that's great. Okay. So according to data from Facebook, how many people around the world dance salsa? Is it a 50 million, b 129 million, c 200 million, or d 3 billion? You guys are asking me some real impossible questions <laughs> that have nothing to do with us. You're doing great, though. You've been getting a lot of right answers. Yeah. Uh, I'm just going to go on a limb here, and I'm going to go with the 200 million just because we had 200 calories. You are correct. <laughs> and that 200 million is more than the next than the three next most popular dances combined, which is bachata, swing, and tango. Oh, no way. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That is fantastic. That's cool. Now that's that question was scored just no yes, and you got it correct. So so great <laughs> points. That's a zero one option. So currently, just to, for those of you keeping track at home, Danny has earned twenty five points. Strongly agree. Uh, zero points for a no. Very satisfied. Ten and yes. So we'll figure out how to put that together at the end. Now this is a classic survey researcher's dilemma about how do you combine scales with different response options. <laughs> now my question, Mike, this is the one that I added, so you can ask the last question that you came up with. What is the ideal tomato for making homemade salsa? <laughs> a Roma tomato? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, incorrect. It is canned. Well, because let me ask you this. Oh. Yeah, I, I was going to ask, but I already gave it away. It is nope. canned. Nope. Tomatoes, nope. canned, absolutely canned tomatoes, because they're picked oh. at the height of freshness yes. and then yes. preserved and grocery stored. Now, if you can get fresh, you know, tomatoes off the vine, Roma, frankly, uh, yes, often optimal. 
but uh, on average, uh, you're going to do better with canned tomatoes. It's very, I was surprised to learn that too, but it, it, it absolutely bears out. You know what though, man, I was making the classic gringo mistake and mixing up salsa with uh, pico de gallo. So Uh-oh. salsa, you know, obviously, yeah, it's like nice and yeah, puree, that makes sense yeah. for it to be canned tomatoes. Absolutely but yeah, right. pico de gallo, definitely no cans. All right, All right we're going to let Mike question. Take away, yeah. This is for dancing, back to dancing. What percentage of wives wished their husbands took them salsa dancing more often? Ooh. Mmm. 70. <laughs> the answer is 100%. Oh, 100%. that's awesome. That is awesome. That is awesome. Well, I don't know what. Okay. Okay. That's great. That's really nice to hear. I should tell my wife about that because... We're- you know, I got to tell her. I got to tell her. <laughs> I'd say we're going to give you partial credit for that. We're going to give you a sum of the time for that. So your total score uh, is okay. some combination of some of the time, false, yes, 10 points, very satisfied, no, strongly agree, and 25. And Danny, I'm really happy to say you've won our prize. Yes. So I'll be happy to write the out-of-office message for you for your trip this weekend. So um, <laughs> I'm going to go ahead and uh, gin one up and shoot it over to you by the uh, end of the day so you have it ready for Sunday. You guys are amazing. This has been such a blast. Seriously, a lot more fun than I even thought it would be. <laughs> uh, where do you see the field of implementation science headed? What's the main, what's the main focus we need to have? Oh, man. I, I, don't, I think we're going to be, for the next few years, we're still going to be trying to create really good multi-component implementation strategies. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time doing that. That's what I think. And we're going to, and we're going to start taking optimization seriously in implementation science. Yep. What are one of the, or two of the most important implementation science publications that you feel any budding implementation science researcher should read? Yeah. You guys asked me this and I'm so sorry that this was so hard for me to prep for. And I don't actually have a solid answer. And I, and I'm so sorry, you guys, I'll try to re I'll try to record myself uh, giving you an answer to that if I think of it, but I, I just think it's too hard to pick a one or two single papers. Really, really. All right. All right. I also, I also think it's really hard because so much of the implementation science is creeping into effectiveness science. So I think if I wanted to do this my way, I'd look across the entire literature, not just implementation science literature. So uh, this is maybe, hard. can you, if you think of, you know, uh, two or three researchers that you, that you really admire that you can think of off the top of your head and you say, you know, if you're going to, if you have, you know, a limited amount of time and you want to, you know, you want to find some people to follow, who are some people you think that folks should be aware of? You know, if, if I, if I use the following metric, if I use the metric of, wow, they're making me think, okay. Like, you know, they're challenging my ideas and making me like, I've listened to them, give a talk. I've read their papers and, you know, I'm starting to have to think hard. Um, I would say uh, Brian Weiner, you, you know, um, with, you know what I'm talking about. You know who I'm talking mm-hmm. about, right? With what are multi-levels and, and, and that, that kind, of, that kind of, of work, you know what I mean? Uh, for sure. Yeah. When I listen to him, I really need to like, I almost need a few minutes afterward to stop and digest what I heard. And I love it every time because I feel like my brain grows. So that's, that's nice. my answer. Well, that's great. Keep listening to the podcast. We're, we're going to have him on the show at some point over the next oh, few months, for sure. That's so yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. um, so any cool. shout outs you want to make to any special people or in your in your work or personal life? 
Well, of course, my number one is my wife, Michelle Demers. I don't know. And if she ever hears this, she'll get a little angry with me that I, I gave the salsa, the salsa story. It, in my professional life, uh, you know, the, the three people who I bumped into that made me who I am today, and I attribute everything to uh, Nancy Jacobs in fourth grade, Frank Gonzalez in 10th grade, my French teacher, and Susan Murphy with my PhD. And I think the three of them really made me who I am. So a shout out to them. Nice. And if people wanted to reach you, uh, are you on any social media, Twitter, Instagram, Tinder, uh, um, or yeah, we'll put your website on there, but there, are, are there any social media handles that people should look for you at? Social. Oh, that's great. Uh, believe it's it or not. Social. <laughs> yeah. Believe it. Yeah. Uh, believe it or not. I don't remember what our D3C handle is. I'm trying to frantically look here on our I'll website. I'll find it for you and put it in the show notes. No yeah. Problem. So throw that in there. Um, so basically, you know, we have a website, d3c.isr.umich.edu. And remember what I said earlier, um, my whole, I was trained to give it all away. And that's what I'm trying to do on that website. Basically put myself out of a job so I get to create other things. And everything you ever wanted to know about adaptive intervention, smarts, and very soon, mazes and multi-level smarts will be on there. Everything from design thinking, sample size calculators, anal analysis tools, you name it. It's all going up there in real time as we develop it. And that's where I want people to go. That's so great, man. I that's love great. it. I love it. All right, Danny, it's been so fun having you on the show. We really appreciate it. And uh, we'll uh, talk to you next time. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you liked today's podcast, do all the things podcast hosts ask you to do. Post about it on social media, like, subscribe, share it with your friends and colleagues, or move your hips at 190 beats per minute. If you didn't like today's show, please explain the difference between odd numbers and prime numbers in a way that motivates a fourth grader. If you want to talk to us, we're on... Uh, X. Hey, do we really have to call it X? I guess so. Really bad name, isn't it? I guess we do. We're on X. I'm at That IS Podcast, and Kevin is at KM King Psych. Honestly, I'm not sure how much longer I'll be on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. All of the comments and opinions expressed during today's show are our own. They are well-reasoned and insightful, and therefore are probably not endorsed by our grant funders or employers. Thanks for listening. On behalf of Kevin King and Danny Almerall, we'll catch you next time. So warm. I feel warm and fuzzy and I feel great and I feel energized.